Welcome, everyone, to the Rumcast. We're a new podcast that helps you to navigate the world of rum by talking about all things rum-related with the people who love it. I'm one of your hosts, John Gulla, and on the line we have your other host, Will Hookinga. Hey, John. So on today's episode, I think somewhat fittingly, we're talking to someone else who has uh, recently started something new and rum-related. Mm-hmm. So. We did an interview with Eric Kay, who is the founder of Holmes Key, which is a new and, at, at least in the U.S., somewhat rarely seen uh, independent bottler of rum. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I know one of the things you and I both talk about a lot being in the U.S. is we constantly see so many uh, just like outstanding looking uh, independent bottlings being released overseas in Europe. Um, and, you know, we don't get a lot of that available here in the U.S. So seeing someone doing that for the market over here is pretty exciting. And, you know, it's one of the things that we uh, talk about with Eric on the interview. But, you know, if you go to uh, Holmes Key's site, you know, you'll see that their kind of mission is to seek out the world's best rums and uh, release them unadulterated at cask strength, which is another thing that I think had both of us excited. Definitely. I think uh, you're exactly right that uh, a lot of times we'll see this new product get get out there. And I'm in Miami, Florida. And even though that's a pretty decent big city, uh, I still don't get to see some of the releases at all or sometimes for a year or more afterward. Right. Uh, I was lucky enough that uh, I was excited for this interview because I did get to try Holmes Key, uh, uh, their Barbados product, uh, recently at a rum event. So I'm really, really excited to uh, share this uh, with everybody in the rum world and, and super excited to see how it's going for yeah and and you know you mentioned that that first release is from barbados just to give listeners a little bit more background on that so the first release um and it's it's a it's right around 500 bottles i think that are available um so it's a blend of pot and column distilled rums um from the much adored four square rum distillery Mm -hmm. uh two casks were selected both aged 11 years in the tropics and then three years in the uk before they were bottled at uh, right around 128 proof. I think it varies a bit depending on which cask you get. Um, so yeah, if, you know, if you follow rum closely, you've probably seen it popping up in you know lots of places online. It was featured in several sites like Fat Rum uh, Pirate, Rum Revelations, Got Rum. There are a bunch more um, really good uh, articles. There's some review stuff in there. We'll link to it in the show notes. So after you listen to the interview with Eric, if you want to learn a little bit more about uh, Holmes Key Barbados 2005, you you can check that out. There's reviews and, and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, another reason I was really excited to have Eric on the podcast is because what he's doing is is it's pretty rare. I mean, I, there's not many people in the U.S. who are sourcing rums like this and, and making them available out to the market here in the U.S. as well. Um, I know for a long time, Americans have had to, like, painfully observe from afar off uh, these independently, independent bottlings, like you mentioned, you know, that we'll see get released in Europe and all these other places and not here. Um, and I think that uh, it's really great that he's working hard to change that and that we're having access to them now. Yeah, there's also there's also a few, you know, clues dropped throughout about where some of the next Holmes Key releases will be coming from. So, you know, this isn't just a one off. It's it's going they're going to be regular releases from Holmes Key co- uh, going forward from all over the world. Um, and Eric, you know, uh, shared a little bit about that with us, as well as some some great stories about, uh, you know, what it was like to get advice from Richard Seal throughout the process of bringing this run to market and um, all kinds of good stuff there. So I think for now, uh, we will stop talking and let you you hear this interview with Eric Kay. So, all right, here it is. Mm-hmm. 
So we're here with Eric K. Eric, I know at this point, so Home's Key 2005, your first release is out. It's in stores. People are writing about it. You're getting to see actual consumers and rum fans react to it. What's kind of just going through your mind now after what I can only assume was a ton of work <laughs> to get to this point? Uh, just everyday awesomeness. It's been really, really amazing to see the reception because we spent a good year, you know, preparing and going through the paperwork and logistics and bureaucracy and all this while having no idea whether anybody would actually buy it or like it. We spent so much time working on getting it to market that when the actual day of sales first came in October, you know, we just kind of crossed our fingers and, you know, we, we hope people will get it. I knew we would be able to sell at least 20 bottles to our friends and family, but we've, you know, in the first month, we've sold 30% of our first release, which we're pretty pleased about. And wow. getting up and seeing posts online with your rum on Facebook, people you have no idea who they are. Is... Right, right. Are there, are, have there been any uh, particular reactions that have stood out to you so far? Um, a, a couple, you know, there was that one, the blind taste test that Ivar um, Delat hosted against four 2005 right. similar, you know, cast strength, four square bottlings. And that, well, you know, the, the 2005 he loved and the Velier release, which is not available here. Right. You know, ours was just a little bit behind that, which, you know, to be included in that company is just awesome, I think. Right. Walking among among giants. So I, I, I do want to talk about the release itself. So this this particular release, it's two casks of rum from Foursquare, both aged 14 years, both ex-bourbon casks. Um, what was kind of your approach for selecting barrels for this? You know, obviously, I would imagine this is sort of an extra big barrel pick decision, given that it's your first release. So I'm curious to know sort of what you were looking for going into the process. So for our first release, we really thought it was important to hit one out of the park and, you know, not play it safe, but pick something that we knew was going to be awesome. And I think four square realms right now are the best on the planet. He's really doing amazing things down there, Richard. Agreed. Definitely. So, I mean, we started by making a list of our favorite distilleries and we narrowed that from like 100 to 20. And then from that 20 ones that we thought really would be, you know, really accessible distilleries from Jamaica, Barbados, Guyana, um, Martinique. But then, you know, we kept coming back to Foursquare because he's never made a bad rum yet. So... And when you when you say we, how many people are involved in this process? Um, primarily me, but I have you know a small group of rum fans, aficionados. Uh, I have a wife who is also very involved in the company, and she absolutely has been tasting and weighing in on every single barrel, uh, even at awesome. eight in the morning. Sometimes you got to try this one. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of a, a rum advisory board. Yeah. So then you know, we made a selection of about a half dozen different four square barrels in years. And this 2005 release was just awesome. And I kept coming back to it. And, 
everything else kind of went by the wayside. And the fact that we were able to get him was wonderful because we don't have the reputation of a Vellier or a Cadenhead or a Samaroli. We're brand new. We're little guys. We're nobody. So, you know, we wanted to help convince people that what we had was good and using a distillery with the dedication to excellence like Foursquare really made it made it the obvious choice. Yeah, I think it was a really smart decision to go with that. It's such a, a, a hot name, as you mentioned, but also a, a quality name in the industry to pair with. Uh, and, and definitely I can see that that was a, a conscious decision to, to make knowing our community and, and getting your first product out there like that. I'm a huge Foursquare fan, by the way. Uh, and uh, definitely I think uh, it, it the product hangs with that. Which, by the way, I had a quick question before we keep going. How do you pronounce the name exactly? Because we hear a lot of, is it Holmes K, Holmes Key? Uh, it's Holmes Key, but part of that name was knowing that people would mispronounce it as Holmes K. <laughs> <laughs> right. We, we were kind of going back and forth because we know it's a word that's sort of perpetually mispronounced, particularly in the U.S. Um, and, and so I was investigating a little bit, and that's when I found my way you know, to your IMDb page, which mentioned that your middle name is Holmes, so your last name is, is pronounced K, so Holmes <laughs> K, that only added to the mystique around the name. So yeah, we wanted to kind of get the whole story there. Exactly. Also, a touch on the Foursquare again, I want to make it clear that it, it's distilled at Foursquare, but it's really not a Foursquare rum. Right. You know, only Richard can make Foursquare rums. You know, thankfully, he's been generous and supportive of independent bottlers and supplied them with rum distilled at his distillery. But I'm, you know, I'm not releasing a Foursquare rum. It's a whole right. rum. And that's a good clarification to make for everyone to make sure. Uh, agreed, 100%. Um, starting there is what we're talking about, I think, is a good, smart business decision. And there are plenty of great uh, distillers out there, as you mentioned, in different places. But I know that uh, starting there and, and kind of moving your product from, from that basis made a lot of sense to me. So your background, Eric, is is also in music and film, which we were kind of surprised uh, when we were looking up uh, some stuff because we've we've both been in the music industry a little bit as well, and uh, and clearly I, you've done a lot more than we have, <laughs> but um, that was kind of a cool connection that we thought and, and an interesting kind of thing that all of us are into music and all of us are into rum, and we noticed that you uh, composed music for films and TV and have been a producer for over two decades, which I thought was really awesome, and. Throughout that time, I think you were also uh, into rum primarily as a consumer. So I guess my question was, like, as you're doing all this and you're going through, how do you go from someone who is uh, enjoying rum, like we are, a lot of us are, are, to someone who then decides to kind of turn the corner and build a business around it? Uh, another great question. Um, well, you know, most of the last 25 years or so, I've been involved in music for film, TV, advertising, and in that time, and especially in the last three to five years, the industry has changed drastically, mainly because the barriers to entry have gone away. And now everybody, everybody's a composer. Everybody has garage band and everybody can come home from their day job and their home studio and create music. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I scored a whole Danny Glover movie on my laptop at home one. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, so when I first started, you know, I had a hundred thousand dollar recording studio in Manhattan to set it up. And then when I bought a house up in Westchester, I set up the same studio for about $15,000. And now I can 
do pretty much the same thing on a $2,000 laptop that used to cost $100,000. Yep. Music has become much more commoditized for film and television. There's been a lot of music libraries and production music and websites sourcing of millions of pieces of music that people used to get paid to compose for. So I was trying to think of what else I could pursue with the same passion that I had pursued in music for all these decades. And rum has been an absolute passion for decades. I never thought about doing it professionally, but then when I saw that nobody wanted to pay for music anymore and everybody still wanted to pay for rum, (laughs) it seemed like an obvious obvious thing. So then went into, you know, a two year long deep dive into the industry and the market and the different distillers and what's out there. So is it, is it like a creative outlet for you, this process also kind of similar to how music is a creative outlet? It's 100% a creative outlet. That's cool. Um, You know, plus it's a legitimate excuse to travel the world going to tropical locations and drinking rum. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't hurt. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, a lot like there's a uh, Stephen Sondheim lyric, you know, look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. Yeah. About creating art. And it's, you know, look, we made a rum where there never was a rum before. And you may relate to this, but actually doing the sales of the rum is a lot, you know, it's not that different from hopping in a van with a bunch of guys and driving around the East Coast gigging. Right. Instead of a box of CDs in the back of your car, you've got a box of rum. Right. Like my first trip I you know, with the Holmes Key, I drove up to Rochester and Buffalo and Syracuse and, you know, eight hours in the car. And in your first tour, nobody's heard of you and you'll play to five people in yeah. Des Moines. But, you know, a few people like it. And then the next time, maybe 10 people are there. And then your third trip to Des Moines, you've got 300 people in a line out the door to see your band. That's kind of what we're hoping for with rum. We don't have millions of dollars of funding behind us, you know, getting in the car and driving to stores saying, taste this. It's, we think it's awesome. Yeah. What, what do those conversations with stores typically go like? There's two. And you know, having been to a few dozen stores now, there's very distinctly two types of stores. One of them, and you almost get a sense before you even walk in the door by what they have on their website. And they'll say, okay, you know, doesn't matter to me how good it is because rum is $30. There's no such thing as a hundred dollar rum. People won't buy that. People, mm-hmm. no, it's, don't even waste your time. And then the other stores, you walk in and they've taken one sip and they say, okay, yes, this is amazing. We'll take some. Mm-hmm. It's been a much easier sell than I thought it would be. Do you, do you think the people who have that kind of reaction once they taste it, are they coming from a similar position of like, we can't sell this, but then they taste it and that changes their mind? Or do you think they're already a little bit more open to the idea of, of you know, selling uh, ultra premium rums? The ones that have ultra premium rums already say, yes, we can definitely sell this. They have their customers. They know who are the ones looking for the Samarolis or the Villiers. Mm-hmm. And they know this will fit right in with that line. And then there are others who have never heard of a rum that expensive, but they taste it and they say, okay, now I understand what this is about. We'll take a few bottles to see if we can sell them. Cool. And They're supportive it- of our concept, which is to just bring amazing rums to America. 
Right. And, and I was going to say, actually, you've mentioned in a, a recent interview that being an independent bottler of premium rums in the U.S. is more difficult than in Europe. Is that really kind of the reason why uh, you think it's it's tougher in, in the U.S. to kind of uh, make that sell for a high quality premium rum here than in Europe? Yeah, I, I think there's a few reasons. Um, you know, the first is that we're really at least a decade or two behind Europe in rum culture. The audience is already there in England and France and has been because of their colonies. They've always been rum countries. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't need to introduce people to rum in England. Whereas here it's Bacardi and Captain Morgan. Right. Yeah. And there's also more history of independent bottlings and whiskeys there as well. So there's less of a need to convince people in Europe of the price premium that these go yeah. for. Or in the U.S., it's sort of a new concept, with the exception of bourbon. Um, yep. Bourbon yep. is already caught on. And it's fascinating to see people, you know, say, no, you know, we can't sell a rum more than $100. And they have $650 bourbons right next door, you know, on the shelf and that are five years old. Yeah, I came from the bourbon market before I was into rum, and it, it priced me out. Definitely, I understand what you're saying there. Uh, it's funny. I stand in the aisle sometimes or I'm looking at some of the rums and people will come by and grab that like, you know, bottom shelf type of, like you said, a $15 rum. And I, I, I just weep a little bit because I want them to try this, you know, these amazing premium rums that are out there so bad. And, and yet you're right that I think I see the same attitude from people sometimes of like, no, there's no way you're going to get me to pay that much. Uh, so I think you're, you're doing, uh, the, good work with this. And I think you're continuing to, to get to all of us here. Um, these, these premium rums at, at I think a, a solid price that make a difference with people in, in terms of how they're interpreting and, and seeing rum. Yeah. I think with few exceptions, there's very little rum that's priced ridiculously just for the sake of pricing it. You know, even the premium right rums, I think are a value pound for pound against whiskeys and bourbons. Definitely. You know, a hundred dollar rum is to me the equivalent of a two or three hundred dollar whiskey, if not more. Mm-hmm. And you don't tend to see these these hot Pappy Van Winkles that sell for two thousand dollars that really yeah. should cost a hundred or two hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a few rums that come out at that price point, but you know they've got the fancy crystal bottle and largely marketing from larger companies. But in general. The vast majority of amazing rums are priced really reasonably and fair. It's not like you're, it's not the marketing that's bringing up the price. If you're getting a a real 21 year old rum, you're paying still a fraction of what that would be in a whiskey. And are there any, you know, regulatory hurdles that make it particularly difficult for independent bottlers in the U.S., um, you know, that, that you think uh, it would be beneficial to, to maybe alter or change a little bit? Um, far be it for me to try and alter the rules of the U.S. government. <laughs> there, there, are, there are hurdles and there are organizations doing that work. And the American Craft Spirits Association is, you know, really in the forefront of meeting with the legislators trying to advance things um, but there are there are there's a tremendous amount of regulation i think alcohol is more highly regulated than the pharmaceutical industry even right it's easier to you know bring some sort of pharmaceutical to market almost um and that's largely due to the post-prohibition alcohol laws so we're still dealing with almost 100 year old laws now 
Um, and you've got different alcohol laws and rules in each of the 50 states. When uh, you need a separate distributor in each state, a lot of times a separate permit, um, pricing. And then on top of all that, you've got the three-tier system. Right. Where we can't sell directly to a consumer. We can't even sell directly to a retailer. It all needs to go through a distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be an importer and a wholesaler, but you can't, you know, I can't retail. I can't have a website selling alcohol. Um, in Europe, there's a little more leeway there. With the EU, you can immediately sell to, you know, a dozen countries, two dozen countries. So, it, you know, it's easier to sell in France and Germany or France and Italy than it is to sell in New York and New Jersey. <laughs> right. Right. And like you said, a- ACSA uh, is doing a lot of, you know, advocacy on that front. Um, you know, I, I talk to dis- uh, distillers or, you know, people working at distilleries regularly who are um, eagerly awaiting the day that selling direct to consumers is, is easier for them. And I would imagine you were uh, hoping for that day as well. I would love it. I don't see it happening. And just because of the power of the distributors, there's been yeah. a lot of consolidation in the distribution industry where you get just a few companies that have enormous power um, right. for better and for worse, but they're built, you know, multi tens of millions of dollars, if not billion dollar business, keeping things the way they are and working within that system. It's def- definitely a challenge for sure. Um, get, getting back to the, the rum a little bit, I know you mentioned you started with kind of a, a list of 20 different distilleries you were thinking about going, uh, you know, to, to for the first uh, release. Uh, I know you've, you've traveled all over the world trying rums from different places. Are, are there any rum making corners of the world that you think are a little underrated or overlooked by the rum enthusiast community? Oh, there's a ton of them. Um, what, what are some that stand out to you particularly? And I'm curious to know like why you maybe think they're, they're overlooked or, or not appreciated as much as they should be. A lot of the great distilleries that haven't you know, been known yet is because they're from countries that aren't necessarily known as rum countries. Hmm. Um, you expect rum to come from Jamaica and from Barbados and Guyana. You don't expect there to be a great rum in Japan necessarily mm-hmm. or South Africa. Or Mexico. Or Mexico, or Thailand, even. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, you know, three rums that are fantastic are from those countries. You know, Japan has a rum called Nine Leaves, which right. is not available in the U.S., but, you know, the Yoshi, the distiller, is, you know, one guy in Japan, and, you know, he, he's amazing what he's doing. Um, South Africa has got MOBA, the new one. And also a really funky, wonderful, high ester rum. Um, And then there's places that Americans have never even heard of, like the island of Reunion and Suriname that, you know, make some of my favorite rums. Wow. Reunion is never heard of. Right. Reunion is a French island. It's a French territory east of Madagascar in the middle of the Indian Ocean. This little island. I'm sold already. (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful and but because, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere and because it's French, they've got this great tradition of making rums. Yeah. Um, there's one distillery, Savannah, which has a high ester reunion rum. Right. Um, which is incredible. It has the best nose I've ever, you know, it's like a floral bouquet of fruit salad. It's, it's, it's amazing. Mm. Um, and then Suriname, which is right next door to Guyana, 
and the mm -hmm. realms are not that dissimilar. Everybody raves about the Demerara and, you know, the famed Guyanese rum, but Suriname's distillery is 200 miles away and the same soil, the same, you know, everything, but their rum, with the exception of, you know, a little bit sent up to the Netherlands, never leaves Suriname. I don't think I've ever seen any product from Suriname right. that I can recall. So to me, those are some of the, uh, the underrated and overlooked rums. And in France, I think everybody's going to say, oh, of course, Reunion Marm is great. But in America, you're not going to get that. Right. And even in Japan, it's not really a rum country. You know, the Japanese love whiskey. Uh, yeah. Thailand as well. There's a great rum in Thailand called Praia. Uh, right. There are, and there's more popping up. Australia's got some great little, you know, small craft distillers that are very different from Bundaberg. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, some of the 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 French islands and, you know, if if you're in the US and you're not in uh, you know, a, a city like New York or Miami or or San Francisco, you can be hard pressed to even easily find something from Martinique, you know. Um, so it's no wonder that, you know, rums from reunion for example are still somewhat very under the radar among american drinkers and it's a lot farther to get here than right reunion than martinique um and then the other thing their market and people whose market is primarily the eu are used to the 70 cl bottle whereas in the u.s you need a 750 bottle we can't sell a 70 centiliter bottle that's one of the things ask is hoping mm. to change the rules on that we can bring in bottles of any size which right. drastically change the independent bottling scene in America because all of a sudden we'd have access to all of these amazing European independent bottlings. Which, you know, when you're making when you're bottling one or two casks, you don't really have enough capacity to bottle in both seven hundred and seven fifty. Right, right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that's that's another reason why we don't really get most of that stuff here. Is that something that, that you would uh, eagerly look forward to if suddenly the size restrictions weren't available? Because it would mean more rum, but I assume for an independent bottler, it would also mean more competition. I have mixed feelings on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> understandably, understandably. I do. Uh, you know, personally, I would love to see them all here. You know, secondly, I would just need to up my game and keep having as good or better stuff than everybody else out there. Right. So another thing that stood out to me, um, John mentioned that interview you did with the Rum Lab. I, I know you also mentioned that uh, we'll start to see some really great aged American rums in about five years. I'm curious if there are any particular distilleries you have your eye on, um, or you know, or, and what kind of makes them stand out from others in the category. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's been an explosion in the last decade of new American rum distillers, which yeah. is yeah. fantastic. And a lot of them are getting into green practices and sustainable and non-GMO cane. And, you know, it's, it's really wonderful. And they're getting all into the science of it rather than let's just, you know, we're making our bourbon and our whiskey. Let's try some rum also. And rum is a very different, more difficult beast uh, than just making some vodka. Yeah, I never thought about it, but that makes sense in, in the sense that you're not tied to these like age old traditions of, you know, 
uh, a Caribbean island where you've done it for this way for centuries and you feel tied to that. So I think American rums have this space to explore the processes and do things a little differently, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, the the 10 year old rum I'm looking forward to most in, you know, 10 years, if she'll do it is something from privateer. Yeah. Maggie Campbell's making the best rum, you know, in America, hands down. And even, you know, in the world, she's got to be in the conversations. Yeah, I Maggie is an incredible person to talk to. And, you know, if if you're active in any um, you know, rum Facebook groups, you might be familiar with her popping in and sharing, you know, just incredibly insightful <laughs> knowledge that she has into rum. Oh, it's amazing. Um, you, somebody can post something like, Ooh, you know, is yeast used in rum? And then she'll go into a PhD level discussion, yeah. <laughs> dissertation on yeasts and fermentation and subspecies. And, you know, yeah. right. her knowledge is awe inspiring and she's extremely generous about sharing it also. One of the things I love about the rum hobby actually is that that uh, people like you and Maggie are approachable uh, in those formats and yet also give such in-depth answers to questions that, that really enlighten the subject for us all. So that's awesome. I think at the end of the day, because it doesn't have the huge cachet of bourbons, we're all just really big fans of the spirit. We all want to see it succeed and however we can help do that. You know, it's yeah. not like I'm going to hold the secrets from you and only I know the right yeast to make. There's a lot more involved in knowing what yeast to use and what, I mean, the amount of variables in creating a rum. Right. And not only that, she, you know, shares her experiments twice a year. She comes out with the distiller's draw day and she releases, you know, all of her single barrel experiments. Right. And, you know, and some of them are incredible. Some of them are, I think, less successful, but you know, it's still a really cool experiment. Like what would it, you know, taste like, you know, whiskey cask with, you know, smoke. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of the things that draws me to that I think is so interesting and unique a little bit about American rum is if you get in on it now, you kind of get to go through the experience of seeing these people who are relatively newer to the spirit sort of like find their footing um, and, and and figure out really what they want to do. It's kind of like I compare it a lot to uh, getting to go see the band before they become big, you know? Yeah. It's like getting to see them at the small venue playing and still figuring out each other and that sort of thing. So Hoping you can get tickets once they're playing Madison. <laughs> Exactly. Hopefully they'll remember you uh, when they're big and keep a little bottle tucked away uh, for for the people who are there from the beginning. But yeah, and that's, you know, one of the conversations I've had with uh, an American, you know, distiller that always stands out to me is I was talking to Karen Hoskin from Montagna out in Colorado, who, you know, you mentioned... You mentioned sustainability. Some of the stuff that they're doing out there is 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 uh, amazing, um, and you know, really uh, having a lot of leadership on that front. But you know, she mentioned she th- there are so many other distilleries that just kind of like try to oh we'll just put out a rum, not really realizing how complex and difficult it actually is. She mentioned to me that she's had so many whiskey distillers come up to her and just be like, hey, like what the hell is up with uh, <laughs> fermenting molasses? Like, I had no idea this would be so hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to kind of see everything that's going on in, in that category. Karen is doing amazing things, you know, both for her rum and for rum in general, and really is leading the forefront of green and eco-friendly alcohol and spirits. 
And she's doing a lot for women in rum as well. Her new rum Absolutely. just announced is an all-female created rum with a female distiller, a female brand owner, and they source the barrels from a female whiskey or rye distillery. Mm-hmm. And it was bottled by all women. And I mean, it's really, you know, it's not exclusionary to men at all, but she says, this is what we can do. Right. I believe I believe that rum's called Valentia. Um, I think so. And should be coming out soon. I can't wait to try it. And I would love to see what a few more years in the mountains would do to her rums because aging in the mountains is mm. very different than aging in, you know, the tropics. Yeah, exactly. So what you can do in three years in Jamaica really takes six or seven years up in the mountains at least. So yeah. I would love to try her rums once they've really gotten to mature and you know, a 10 year old Montana has got to be incredible. Yeah. Also, forward to it. when a lot of these distillers are starting up, it's still a small industry. They're not starting up with millions of dollars. They don't necessarily have the ability to set aside large stocks of rum to age. They need to sell what they're making to pay back their loans on their stills and everything else. Right. Yep. So once you get established a little, like, you know, Karen has done, now hopefully she'll be able to start setting aside some barrels for longer and longer. Um, Richland is another distillery in America that is definitely in my top five. Yeah. I have to try that. Will and I were talking about that. Will, go ahead and talk about that more. Yeah, no, no. I've got a few little samples of of Richland rum set aside to send down to John in Miami. Yes. uh, They're definitely, you know, among uh, another uh, American distillery that's that's doing something really interesting in that, you know, they're growing all their cane and and doing everything right there on the estate. So lots of interesting stuff. And, um, you know, maybe maybe ten years from now we'll see a, a Holmes Key bottling from uh, an American distillery. I, I'm begging Maggie to sell me some barrels. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I see her, please, Maggie, if you're listening, I would love a barrel. Um, there's other Thomas Two out of Newport is also making really good rums. Right, they've been at it for a while. Yeah, Maggie's Farm in uh, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, which in everybody Pittsburgh. uses with Maggie Campbell. They're right, separate rums. But they have an amazing spiced rum, which is not sweet or sweetened or cloying. It's really more botanical and herbal. It's a great mm-hmm. rum. A really good falernum, too. Yeah. The mm-hmm. falernum and their spiced are their two strongest, I think. Yeah. And, and not to get off on an, an, an American rum tangent too much, but Tim Russell from Maggie's Farm, who's the you know founder and head distiller there, he every time I talk to him, he's out traveling trying to learn something more about rum production so um yeah someone i I think to definitely keep an eye on who is definitely pushing and 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 really wanting to grow as a distiller yeah one interesting american rum that is not really on the big national radar i think is called wiggly bridge up in maine right heard Mm -hmm. of those guys they actually have a dunder pit up in Mm. maine used to make you know really funky jamaican style rums they can only use the dunder pit a few months a year because of the weather up there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they're making these high ester, really funky realms up in Maine, I think is really cool. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. You see all sorts of um, different bits and pieces of uh, other, you know, countries' rum making traditions kind of popping up in places you would never expect. So, yeah, definitely, definitely a fun example. A Maine. Uh, Maine Dunder is is not something that has probably you know ever existed before that I would guess. <laughs> yes, it really is. It's, it's awesome. I would definitely try it. It seems seems really cool. 
Uh, so, Eric, one of the things I was going to ask you, you mentioned earlier about how the uh, rum community is relatively small uh, compared to some other spirits out there. Uh, so when you're when you're making a product and, and you're thinking about how to approach this, had you put any thought into how you were going to balance attracting people who already love premium rums versus people who may love other spirits but have never had a really great rum? Um, well, theoretically, it's the same audience i mean great spirits are great spirits yeah i don't really believe in gateway rums where you need to lure people in with really sweet stuff first and then you know say okay now that you've you know you love your i'm not gonna mention any <laughs> and then wean them off <laughs> yes the sweetened rums you know you can wean them off towards you know now try a doorlies or now try an appleton or a mount gay or, yeah you know, people that already love rum will hopefully be attracted and know what it is we're bringing that hasn't really been available here. And people that love fine spirits are, you know, saying, wow, this is this is what rum can be. This is what rum is. Right. Whereas the people who already love rum say, you know, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> that that is That is an interesting point, though, because the more I think about it, I have had those experiences where I'm talking to a friend who, you know, is a bourbon fan or something like that. There's someone who appreciates, you know, quality spirits. You don't have to, like, give them something that is sweetened um, or, you know, a, a more, like, radio-friendly rum. I remember I... I had a friend over and I just handed him a bottle of uh, La Favorite's uh, unaged, uh, you know, rum agricole. And he smelled it and was just like completely blown away. And, you know, an unaged rum agricole is not typically a, a rum people, you know, would describe as what you said, a quote unquote gateway rum. Um, but like you said, I, I maybe it's true that those don't even really exist with, you know, when you're talking to people who already appreciate spirits. Yeah, you know, at our sort of price point, we're not going after, you know, the 21-year-old who wants to get hammered at a, a frat party. We're going for <laughs> right. someone who's much more going to drink a single malt scotch or a high-end, you know, Calvados or Armagnac. Right, and that, and that speaks to a lot of the image of what rum is for a lot of people, and I think you've talked about that in the past as well, where you said it was kind of like the, you know, the palm trees and pirates and, and that type of uh, an atmosphere when people think of rum. Even people who are in, really into other spirits, I think that still is pervasive. So I guess with that in mind then, did you like take any cues from different spirit categories that are out there in terms of how you wanted to design and label and brand and uh, promote Holmes key 100 um, percent with few exceptions we really stayed away from any of the realm labels because a lot of them you know you could almost put them into categories the palm tree realms the ship realms yeah. you know the pirate realms and they all need to have some sort of tropical you know image to note yes this is a caribbean this is a fun this is a good time party mm. and I'd like to bring a little more prestige to the category. And so we really much more took our signs from Scotch whiskey. That's mm -hmm. the spirit that's most similar in feel to the concept. Scotch has this sense of history and tradition, commitment to transparency and, you know, all this stuff that we want to do in rum already exists in, you know, the Scotch world. Whiskey is where it seemed to hit home. You have these simple, clean, minimal labels that, talk about what's in there. You don't see a Loch Ness monster on the bottle or, you know, <laughs> a Scotland, you know, a sheep. It's, it's not, they're not using a sheep to sell the, 
to the whiskey. It's yeah. the quality of what's in there. So we much more look to that in a real simple, minimal uh, label and design. So I know kind of the the, the stated goal of Holmes Key is I, I know you want to introduce rum drinkers in the U.S. to tastes and expressions of rum they haven't had access to before. So can you give us any hints on, you know, maybe what rum fans in the U.S. can expect to see from Holmes Key going forward? Absolutely. I don't want to give away all the secrets because they're, they haven't been bottled yet. And until sure. they're bottled and I know that they're what I'd like them to be. But our, our general plan is to release about four or five rums a year for now, you know, all between, you know, 300 and 1,000 bottles, depending on how well we do and how quickly mm-hmm. we ramp up. And to start mostly in the British style. So without giving away any specific releases, rums of Barbados, Jamaica, Guyana, Belize, uh, all, you know, all the British territories. Uh, eventually love to add some of the French style rums, the agricoles and some Spanish rums. But for now, we're really focusing on the British empire to say. Right. Uh, and again, we're not unlike all you know, the American craft rum makers that are in your rum report. We're really not distillers. I have no plans to open a distillery. That's not my, my forte, not my knowledge. Um, we're more curators. You know, we want to search out the best rums that are out there and bring them to everybody without diluting them down to 40% or adding sugar or anything. I, I think they can stand for themselves. You know, really well-crafted rum doesn't need sugar. It doesn't need to be brought down to 40%. You don't need to mix it with Coca-Cola. <laughs> you don't say. But you can. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing, you know, in Havana, having a Cuba Libre, there's nothing better than some Havana Club and, you know, real Coke with sugar and not corn syrup. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it has its place. There's absolutely, you know, a place for mixed drinks and unaged rums, but that's not really what we're we're about. If you saw someone about to tip a bottle of Holmes Key 2005 into a, a glass containing Coca-Cola, would you have to stop your arm from reaching out and grabbing <laughs> theirs? What would be going through your mind in that moment? I would say, let me have a sip too. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. The, the whole concept of this is the way alcohol is meant to be drunk and no, it, it's, it's nonsense. You should drink how you like it. If you like it with ice, drink it that way. If you like it with Coca-Cola, it's up to you. You know, to me, it's a waste of, if you're going to drink it with Coca-Cola, you don't need to spend $100 on a rum to do that. Right. To me, a, a rum and Coke with a $100 rum is a hell of a lot better than a rum and Coke with Bacardi. But <laughs> So yeah, you know, drink your rum however you want to do it. Right. There is no wrong answer. Agreed 100%. And I'm excited, you know, you mentioned sticking to, for the next few releases, probably some of the... Uh, places you know traditionally associated as with british style rums but um you know even when you start talking about some of the the different styles within that you know jamaica barbados guyana it's still so much diversity of style even within that old kind of you know category of quote-unquote british style rum there's there's still completely different things to experience so that's going to be exciting to see some of those those releases coming yeah and just sort of a hint like the first rum i would say i would say the barbados is much more for bourbon drinkers to convert them sure and the next release or two is going to be more geared towards the scotch drinkers okay Ooh. it's yeah i'm not giving anything away but the next ones are for whiskey drinkers whereas this was to convert bourbon drinkers 
I'm, I'm imagining a, a kind of smoky Guyana rum, uh, possibly, in, in the future, based on that description. That may or may not be true. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot confirm or deny. I'm imagining my wallet opening again. But I will tell you that there will be no additives, no coloring, no sugar, no, no anything. Beautiful. Awesome. And I know with the process of Holmes Key 2005, you've mentioned that Richard Seal was very generous with his time, advice, as you kind of went through the process of bringing this first release to market. Can you share any of the best advice or insights that stand out that, that you took away from, from Richard? Oh, gosh. Um, where to start, right? <laughs> yeah, where to start? You know, he, he's, he's a man of few words. So when he, you know, he does use his words, you really need to listen to them. He, he doesn't suffer fools. Um, so you really need to know your stuff before even approaching him. Um, there have been times where I've asked, in hindsight, kind of stupid questions just because we were new. And rather than, um, you know, responding, he would just ignore them, which is fine. He <laughs> 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 shouldn't have been asked in the first place. But, you know, it was a lot more about the, the process of you know, making it happen rather than specific advice. Uh, the guy who gave much more advice would be Ed Hamilton, mm. mm-hmm. who has also been wonderful. You know, he's the real guy who helped start the U.S. rum craze, I would say. Right. I was going to say kind of the original uh, small independent importer of rums to the U.S. You know, and his advice is you don't need a lot of money to start. I mean, you need some, but you don't need millions of dollars because it's not a huge market at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. You can do this relatively small and buy more of it, you know, don't buy one barrel, buy four barrels, don't buy four barrels, buy an ISO tank, you know, just, just keep buying stuff and getting it out there and sell it and spread the gospel of rum. Um, awesome. You know, he's very much a us against the world guy. He's like, you know, nobody's your friend. And thankfully I found there's been a lot of friends out there that have helped along the way. So. Yeah, it's not treacherous like the record industry. <laughs> not, as, not as not as cutthroat as I mean, music. it may be at the you know corporate levels of the high end stuff that are operating yeah. in worlds that we can't even fathom. But you know, among the small bottlers and producers, it's it's the rum family, right? That that is it's interesting that you bring that up because I've observed that really with with a lot of the you know smaller um, rum producers I talk to across the U.S. There's really a sense of kind of being in it together and and sharing information and, and stuff like that. Uh, Maggie Campbell, for example, who we've already talked about a lot. I talk to so many uh, people like people opening distilleries that like have gone up there and you know she's shown them everything they do and stuff like that. Um, I'm curious, does that kind of sense of being in it together, does that carry over to independent bottlers at all? Or, or is there more of a sense of competition for sourcing, you know, the best casks and stuff like that? Um, I really can't speak to Europe. And because there's not really people doing it here in America, right. there's not really people I'm competing against yet. I, I fully expect there to be others in, you know, coming soon as rum grows. But all of the European bottlers have been, you know, wonderful, you know, offering to even share barrels you know if we get six of these you want to oh wow which which is great Hmm. because we're not selling in the same markets so there's really not competition and if there's one barrel of something there's usually two or four or it's rare that you'll find just one barrel that's so unique just by the nature of production so there's been enough to go around so that you know the releases out of denmark are different and 
a lot of people are starting to put their own spin on it. The 1423 guys in Denmark, a lot of their single barrel releases, they managed to age another year in various assortment of casks, be it mm. sherry or port. So they're coming up with their own spins on these rums as well. Right. Yeah. And I've seen isolated cases of that in the U.S. too, like Two James Distillery, you know, who does Dr. Bird rum, which, you know, they import from Jamaica and then they finish in uh, Moscatel casks here to kind of put, you know, their own sort of unique spin on it. And uh, we're trying to also get away from the word finish, which is, you know, marketing sheen. The the preferred (laughs) term these days is secondary maturation. Oh, okay. That's that's a good tip. They haven't been finished in, you know, sherry. They've been in for a secondary maturation in sherry casks for an additional year or two. Right. I never did quite understand what the exact time range was to qualify for finishing, quote unquote. It's, it doesn't really mean anything. It's a marketing term. Right. And if you're doing it less than six months, it's it's purely marketing. You're not going to get any maturation with six months in another barrel unless that barrel has got about four liters of port in there. (laughs) (laughs) That creates its own interesting uh, uh, effects. Uh, so uh, on the podcast, Will and I talk a lot about rum uh, itself and the, the spirit itself, but also what it does and how it brings people together. And you kind of mentioned a little bit of that. And one of the th- things we wanted to ask you about is, do you have a like a most unforgettable place that rum has taken you or a moment that sticks out uh, that is somehow related to rum or anything, a story, something like that, that uh, sticks out in your mind because of rum or has to do with it? Hmm. Good rum stories. Oh my gosh. So one of my favorite rums I had, you could only find in the post office of a small village in Antigua. Um, Antigua, In the post office. (laughs) Yeah. Antigua distiller, you know, makes English Harbor is their, their big export rum. Mm -hmm. Fantastic distillery. Uh, There was a postmaster in this little village of like 2000 people. His name was Bushy. And he would buy bulk rum from the Antigua distillery and age it and blend it himself. And you could only buy it under the counter at the post office in Bolins. <laughs> so you're like, I'll take a book of stamps and a bottle of rum. <laughs> it was, and, and uh, you know, there's this German guy who has a rum bar down in Antigua, Papa Zook. And he's like, you got, you know, the best rum on the island. You got to go to Bushy and, you know, get a bottle. Sure enough, you know, took a taxi to this village in the in the middle of the island. And, you know, I'm like, is Bushy here? He's like, who's asking? <laughs> <laughs> I was told, you know, to get your rum. And he's like, all right. He opens up a drawer and he's like, Bushy's, you know, famous rum. And it was fantastic. And, you know, sadly, Bushy passed away a few years ago. Oh. That was, was the this, end of Bushy's rum. Yeah. Was this like like the label like handwritten and like No, he had them or? printed up. I think his real name was Angelo Barreto. Uh, it was, you know, Barreto's finest golden rum. I think there's probably a picture on the internet somewhere hmm. of it. Hmm. But it was it was wonderful and it was cheap. You know, he was maybe five dollars or ten dollars a bottle. Wow. Uh, you know, that that was I've never seen a, a rum like that. You know, there's lots of handmade aguardientes and you know, botanical spiced rums all over the yeah. Dominican Republic that you have no idea what's in there. And they, you know, or special ancient pig's feet secret. Or yeah. whatever. But <laughs> this wasn't a flavor. It wasn't a spiced rum. It was just, you know, Bushy would age it and blend it himself and <laughs> sell it at the post office. 
It's amazing. I I thought that I had enough reasons to be disappointed in my average trip to the post office. But suddenly, <laughs> it suddenly seems even more inadequate now. I would love to find another bottle of that stuff. Yeah, I feel like the U.S. could adopt that. You know, we, we our post offices could also sell rum. That would be great. I think <laughs> that would make it so much better. <laughs> in New York, our Seven Elevens can't even sell rum. <laughs> oh man, our supermarkets can't sell rum. New York is a, a very strict state. Yeah, I, I I grew up for the most part in Alabama, so no no stranger to uh, to arcane and very strange alcohol laws. And you can't sell non-alcoholic beverage in an alcohol store in New York, so you can't buy a mixer even. You can't buy your rum and your Coke really? there. You've got to go somewhere else to buy your Coca Cola or margarita mix or whatever. Amazing. We we should add a segment at some point to the podcast where we have people guess if something is an actual uh, alcohol related law or just one that we've made up. That is a cool idea. <laughs> we have fifty that, episodes. One. I know. Day. I'm <laughs> writing that down as we speak. <laughs> it's amazing. People in California are blown away that you can't buy wine at the supermarket in New York. We just got that in Tennessee within the last, I want to say, two years. That just became a thing. Uh. Usually Florida's behind in everything, but I guess in this, I've seen they, they sell alcohol and wine in all the big supermarkets here. Florida is a great rum state. It really is. I think it might actually be the largest consumer of rum huh. because of the large Latin American community. Yeah. Your you know, tradition is drinking rum and not sipping it, but mixing it. And- yeah. Well, and yet the interesting thing there is I can tell you as a matter of practical experience that it's it, there's rum everywhere here. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to find some of the stuff that we're talking about as, you know, aficionados, some of the bottlings that are uh, more difficult. Like, for instance, you know, Foursquare, it's in total wine, uh, but it's not easy to find everywhere. And then there's some other ones out there, you know, that just it, it feels really difficult. You have to go to like, you know, the corner store on like uh, in some neighborhood in Hialeah or something to find it. Uh, and it, it, that's very, very difficult for me, at least in my experience so far, unless I'm just avoiding the places that I should be going. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is all, you know, also in Latin America and in the Caribbean, there really isn't this tradition of drinking and sipping aged rum. That's much more of a European thing hmm. that came over from whiskeys. Yeah, um, you can't go 10 feet here without seeing a bottle of Bacardi. But, <laughs> but largely, yeah, finding... the Caribbean and Latin America, I mean, they're they're not wealthy countries. So people yeah. didn't have the wherewithal to save rum and spend $50 on a bottle of aged rum. Rum was to get drunk. It was cheaper than beer. You know, they weren't making yeah. whiskey. Rum was the beverage of choice. And yeah. when you started bringing it over to Europe, and that's where they really started aging it in the, the Scotch tradition, that's when people started appreciating it. And then that came over to the States and to, you know, the wealthier parts of the Latin America and Caribbean. But the tradition has not been that rum was a beverage to drink like whiskey. Mm, yeah. I think we're coming around though. We're getting there. I, I hope so. <laughs> it's as good, I think. All right. So before you go, I have one more thing as a kind of a separate segment we were thinking about trying. So we're, you know, we're still a relatively young podcast here. We're trying out a few different things. And um, what we were thinking of doing is something like uh, a, a one full minute of rapid fire question type of thing to be a little bit more fun with it and, you know, not to be taken too seriously. Would you be down for that? Let's do it. All right. Awesome. All right. I'm going to start the timer and go. All right, neat or on the rocks? Neat. Okay, pina colada or Mai Tai? Pina colada. 
Okay, pina colada or a daiquiri? Daiquiri. Column, pot, or blend? Blend. Okay, Holmes Key or Katie Holmes? <laughs> oh, that's tough. Uh, okay. It was a tough one. Uh, French style or Spanish style? French. Okay. French or English or British English. style? English. British style. Your favorite person to share a bottle of rum with? My wife. Uh, Jamaica or Puerto Rico? Jamaica. Jamaica or Barbados? Barbados. All right. Foursquare 2004 or 2005? 2005. Okay, 2005 or 2007? 2005. Oh. Ooh, a man after my own heart. <laughs> Probitas or Veritas? Same thing. Trick question, good. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes or Inspector Clouseau? Sherlock Holmes. Of course. Robert Downey Jr. or Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. All right, that's it. That's oh. a minute. <laughs> and, and let's just finish with, uh, and finally, why is the rum gone? Oh, <laughs> because I drank it. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. Excellent. Awesome. Right. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Eric, uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to to be here today. Um, and uh, before we go, are there any places uh, where, where people should go to look for Homes Key? I know it's uh, primarily in New York right now. Where, where can people go to find you? Uh, we are in many stores in New York. We're at a couple of dozen stores throughout New York. Our website lists all of them. If you go to homeskey.com, that's C-A-Y, not K-E-Y. And we're hoping to add a few more states uh, next year. Of the stores that sell it in New York, I know a few of them can ship to about 40 or 50, not 50, but at least 40 states. So um, you can get it through those stores. If not, you can always email us at the website and we can steer you towards stores. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much. And we are certainly looking forward to following uh, where you take Homeski from here. Oh, well, thank you guys for the, uh, the time. Thanks, Eric. All right. If you want to learn more about Homeski and Eric K, you can do exactly that at homeski.com. Uh, you can also follow Homeski on Facebook. And if you spend time in Facebook groups about rum, like John and I do, uh, you might see Eric pop up in conversations there from time to time as well. Yeah, and also, if you enjoyed this episode of the Rumcast, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, find us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us a review. That would be a huge help for us. You know we're just getting started, and, and we would love the feedback. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at the Rumcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening.